0: How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your command. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Thanks, Serena, for reading from Psalm 119 today. We're going to be talking a little bit about living according to God's word, about the Bible today, which can be an uncomfortable topic or conversation for some people. And as we get into that, I thought I want to just ask a question. It has nothing to do with the Bible at this point. But here's a question. What do you think of when you hear the words toke or Chesterfield? Like, what is a Tuke and a Chesterfield? Do you know those terms? Do you know what they are? And you may not know. In fact, if you want to go ahead and comment in the comment section right now and put in your input on what you think those things are, but with no point of reference and never maybe heard hearing those terms before, we may not know what that means, what they are. And so... Be think about how what is that? What does that mean? I've never heard that term before. In fact, I never heard those terms before until I had friends from Canada. My Canadian friends started using these words, and I thought, What are they talking about? What are they say? They keep saying toque. What's a toque? Chesterfield. Go sit on the Chesterfield. What are they talking about? Well, it turns out that if you were in the chat and you answered this way, a toque is a hat or a knit hat, a winter hat uh, that you would wear, which Canadians, uh, you know, wear as well. There's the Canadian hat you can see there. That's a toque. That's what they call a toque. I call it a hat. You call it a hat. The other thing is a Chesterfield is actually like a couch. You know, like here in the United States, we have a brand called the Lazy Boy, right? And we don't call, the rec- we don't call it a recliner. We may call it a Lazy Boy. It's same thing uh, in Canada. So this point of reference. So you would Need to have a Canadian friend or a Canadian background to understand or have what we call a point of reference for understanding those concepts, those terms, those things that they talk about, right? It's the same with Christians, right? If you're not a Christian or if you've never been a part of the church, you'll hear Christians using words and even quoting verses from the Bible. And you may scratch your head and go, what are they talking about? What I have no... Because many, most, most of our society and most of our culture has very little point of reference, a biblical point of reference, that we once had, you know, 100 years ago. But today, that point of reference has pretty much disappeared from our culture and our society. And so it may be uncomfortable for people who are, where we're around, we as Christians around people who, who are in, in the rest of the culture, that may be uncomfortable with some of our terminology, with some of the words that we use, or with uh, the point of orientation that we're coming from from God's Word and living our lives according to God's Word. You know, similar to going into Starbucks for the first time and starting to learn, like, what's a venti and what's a grande? You know, I just want a large coffee, right? So there's these points of reference that we begin to learn. And so one of the things that Serena read was from Psalm 119 today. And that very first verse, I want to go back to that first verse in Psalm 119, which says this, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. So this idea that is all throughout Psalm 119 is really to to celebrate the joy and the goodness of God's word. A whole psalm, it's the longest psalm in the Bible. And one of the things that it's talking about there in the Bible is this idea that we want to live according to God's word, right? So to live, that word live, is similar to creating life, that God's word is life-giving. So think about it this way. If you're a gardener or you like planting things or growing things, really, you don't make the plant grow at all, do you? You, you, you create an environment for growth to happen, to, for seeds to be planted. And so as a gardener, what a gardener does is prepares the soil, right? Prepares and cultivates weeds, puts, gets the rocks out, adds fertilizer, adds fertilizer digs things, plants seeds, waters, does things to cultivate the growth. And so to live according to God's word and to bring light is is to live and to practice the things of God's word that will bring us spiritual life and help us to grow as Christians. And so we go to it as a source of life, as a source of God's goodness in our lives. And that becomes our point of reference, our point of where we grow from and and we this actually connects back to lack, last week's sermon on what we call the big word sanctification which means the process of becoming holy people or be growing in our faith and so this God's word helps us in that way one of the questions people actually ask is why do we obey the bible why do we as christians obey the bible why do we make that an authority in our lives. Why listen to it? Why listen to these words and these people that wrote so long ago, uh, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago? Is there why do we obey these things? Why do we listen to these things? Well, first of all, as followers of Jesus, that's what it means to be a Christian, it means to follow Jesus. So what we do is we first of all go to our leader. What did what did Jesus do with the scripture? What did Jesus do with the Bible that he had? And now he was working with just what we would call the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written when Jesus was alive on the planet. Well, Jesus is still alive today. We know that uh, because of the resurrection. But when he was in flesh, walking as a human among us, there was just the Old Testament. So how did Jesus actually relate to the Bible? That's a great question. So as followers, we do what Jesus did. Now, first of all, there's a great story in Luke where there's a Roman centurion a soldier who asked Jesus to heal uh, his servant his servant was severely ill and dying and so he calls for Jesus Jesus is in a different location he calls for Jesus said Jesus will you come, will you heal my servant and so Jesus says you know says yes to the request and he starts to make his way to the home of the Roman soldier and before he gets there the Roman centurion sends a messenger to meet Jesus before he gets to his house. And the messenger says to Jesus, Jesus, I don't need you to come to the house. I just need you to give your word. Will you just give your word that my servant will be healed? So all the centurion wanted to know was that Jesus had ordered the healing, right? Because the centurion knew that if the one in authority over him gave the command that it would be done, he trusted in the authority of Jesus. He relied on the authority of Jesus to heal his servant. And when when Jesus responds to this faith in the authority, in his authority, he says he has not seen such exceptional faith in all the people around him. So think about that. What it took for the centurion was to have faith in the authority of Jesus. Jesus points us to have faith in the authority of God's word and ultimately in Jesus' word, in Jesus' command and authority. Jesus also said this, he taught this in Luke as well. In Luke chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. He's saying it's not just enough to hear it or to read it, but to actually practice it and put it into practice and to live according to it, as the psalmist says. This is how we live by the word and we obey it because it is an authority and a good authority in our lives that can bring healing. The other thing Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew is he says that he's been given all authority, and then he tells his disciples to go and teach people to obey everything that he's commanded. Again, a reference to the scripture, to Jesus' authority and the authority of his word, and that we're to trust and have faith in his teaching and the authority of his word and so jesus taught the scripture he quoted the scripture he memorized the scripture he practiced the scripture and so we as followers of jesus follow the same way we do the same things and we consider the bible to be an authority in our lives now along with that whenever there's an authority one of the great questions we have to ask ourselves if i'm going to listen to this authority, is this a good authority? Because we know bad authority. We know that when we trust in an authority and they don't do good for us, we learn to distrust authority in our lives. So why obey the authority of the Bible or the word of God or what Jesus teaches us? Well, first of all, we believe that God is good. We believe that God is a good authority for us, that God is, that wants the best for us, that God is doing good for us. So we believe that God is good. And so we obey God, we listen to God, because we believe that what God is saying to us and speaking to us is good for us. Now, somewhere along the way, uh, a nutritionist and doctor said to us, spinach is good for you, right? Spinach is good. It's good nutrients for you. So we, we decided, you know, okay, they, we trust that authority because we're going to say, all right, I agree, spinach is good. But now, I don't like spinach. I don't like eating spinach. I also don't like broccoli. I know we got broccoli fans. I know we got spinach fans. Who's a a Brussels sprout fan out there? I'm a Brussels sprout guy, especially if you put enough butter or cheese sauce on it. It's great. So, but think about this, how this authority has said spinach, leafy greens is good for you. But there's a part of me who's like, I don't like spinach. I don't like leafy greens. I don't want to eat it, Right. But I know it's good for me. So what do I do? I put them in my protein shake in this morning. I take a handful of spinach every morning, and I throw it in my protein shake, and I disguise it you know, so that I get the nutrients. Because why? Because I'm trusting that the authority has said this is good for me, right? And so I'm trusting that authority, and I believe that it is good for me. It's the same. We believe God's good and that God is an authority in our lives that wants good things for us and wants us to be healthy spiritually, and so there are things that in God's Word that help bring about that healthy spirituality. The other thing is we believe God's Word is reliable, that God is reliable, that God's Word is reliable. Um, often uh, people have not seen the Bible as reliable or valid. And I think back to some of my studies in the, pre, in the, in the earlier millennium, we're in the 21st millennium, uh, but in the 1990s, right, I mean, I, that's right, I was born before the millennium, and some of you can't even believe that, right, I don't even know what that's about, but in the 1990s, I was actually doing some research on King David in the Old Testament, and some of the scholarship I was reading was from like the 60s, the 70s, the 80s of of the 20th, you know, the 1960s, the 1970s, 1980s, and these scholars were looking at David, and they were s- saying that David was not a real person, that David was a mythical figure. And the other thing they were doing was the Bible placed the life of David about the 10th century BC. The Bible places David there, but the scholars were questioning the date of the Bible. They're questioning the reliability, the validity of the Bible. And so they were saying, you know, David probably, if he was a real person, was probably about the 6th or 7th century BC. So what I found interesting is that these biblical, quote, biblical scholars were advocating for not believing the Bible. They were saying the Bible is guilty until proven innocent, right? And they were proven. So I'm reading these commentaries, I'm I'm reading these scholarly articles, and they're questioning uh, what's in the Bible. And so at the same time, in 1993 and 1994, there were two key archaeological findings that came out in the 1990s. Now, these two archaeological findings were stone inscriptions from a Mesopotamian king and from an Egyptian ruler that mention King David and mention going to fight and to be in battle against the house of David. So this is in stone, written in stone by people outside of the Bible, outside of the biblical witness people who didn't even believe the Bible, know anything about the Bible, but they're both referring two separate witness accounts to the life of King David. And interesting, when they did the research, archaeologists looked at the stone inscriptions and they dated them with with carbon dating, they looked back and they found out that both these inscriptions were from the 10th century BC. So this was proof that the Bible... What the Bible was saying about King David being a real person and what the Bible was saying about David living in the 10th century were both confirmed by this archaeological evidence that was found in the 1990s. So, those scholars that had been doubting the reliability of the Bible, who had been questioning the reliability of the body, were wrong. And so, that's the thing is that oftentimes we look at the Bible as guilty until we can prove it innocent rather than assuming that it's innocent until we can prove it otherwise. So let's think about our approach to it. So if we as Christians take that approach. We believe that the Bible is reliable and is innocent until proven otherwise. And oftentimes it's proved to be true. And it is a reliable for us and accurate for us. And again, if you can, you can look at some other archaeological evidence, go to the Qumran scrolls, in Israel, and you can find more evidence of the accuracy and reliability of what we have in the scripture. So we believe it's reliable. The other thing we believe, and this is really the heart of it for Christians, is we believe that God is speaking through the Bible, speaking through it, and we get to know God, and God is revealed to us as we read it and discern, learn it, excuse me, and live according to it. So God starts to speak to us through it, If you remember, if you haven't watched last week's sermon, go back and watch uh, about how the role of the Holy Spirit in helping us to grow. And that role of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit works with us even as we read Scripture and as we listen to Scripture and obey Scripture. The Holy Spirit speaks to our spirit and we hear and God is revealed to us in that process. Uh, Dr. Rob Wall, our own Dr. Rob Wall, New Testament professor at SPU, says it this way. He says, Scripture is the Spirit's auxiliary For giving the church wisdom. But such is received only by faithful readers who study the text very carefully in expectation of hearing a sanctifying word from the Lord Almighty. And I think that is a great approach for us. When we read the scripture, are we expecting God to be revealed to us? Are we expecting to hear from God as we read the scripture? That's the work of the Holy Spirit in us to do that. Rob also puts it a little bit more simply. He says this, one finds God's heart in the text. One finds God's heart in the text. And that's the thing about a Christian, about a follower of Jesus, is we want to know God's heart. So we read the scripture to know God's heart and God's holy love for us and for others. And if you heard what Serena read in the Psalm 119 today, you heard this idea the psalmist is saying I am seeking God with what all my heart and I'm hiding God's word where in my heart so what a Christian is doing by reading the scriptures is sinking their heart to God's heart we want our heart to be the heart of God and God wants to put God's heart and love and compassion in our hearts for others as well and so we need to sync up hearts with God right And so as we study scripture, as we live according to the scriptures, our hearts sink with God. And that's so important for us as Christians. And that's why we obey the Bible. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we memorize the Bible. That's why we sink our teeth deep into learning all that the Bible has to say for us. Now, from a Methodist point of view, from a Wesleyan point of view, there's another aspect of this. And so that's, uh, we've basically talked about, uh, obeying the Bible. But I want, there's a later person that comes in here. His name's John Wesley, for those of us who are Methodists, the founder of Methodism. And there are many streams of Methodism today in the world. And different churches go by different names and denominations, but all their roots go back to Methodist or Wesleyan teaching. And one of the things that uh, a historian and theologian named Albert Outler came up with was something called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. And the Wesleyan quadrilateral is, looks at these sources of authority and interpretation for us. And so you see the very first place that a Wesleyan goes is Scripture. It's, a source, it's the primary source of authority for a Wesleyan and for a Methodist to go to God's Word, to go to the Scripture. John Wesley referred to himself as a man of one book or a person of one book. He, he would say that if there was only one book I could read my whole life, it would be the Bible, and I would try and live my life according to the Bible. And so that's the starting point. Now, there are other places, other sources of interpretation and authority that a Wesleyan would go to as well. So we would also go to tradition, which really doesn't mean just any tradition, but really the tradition of the church or the history of the church. So what have previous communities and generations of Christians learned, and what are those truths that have stood the test of time? You know, today we live in a time and an age where everything's new, everything's novel. It really hasn't withstood the test of time. There are certain things that over time stay with us, truths that stay with us. And so we look back at other communities of faith and other Christians at other time periods and say, what are the truths that have been passed on from generation to generation that are consistent with the Bible and continue to get passed on? And we look at those, what we call traditions. Or truths that get passed on over the test of time, and then number three, we look at reason we we as Methodists and Wesleyans we don 't check our brains at the door of the church, we bring our critical thinking skills, we bring a scientific rational thought and reasoning to our to our interpretation of scripture, and we bring all this to bear so we're're we're, I, I think that oftentimes we get viewed sometimes as being uh, ignorant or dumb or not so smart because we're Christians when in reality we I know many 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 very intelligent smart Christians and they're all around us here in Seattle at first free and so one of the things we have to keep in mind is that we do bring reason to bear and we do use God gave us this ability to think critically and to rational rational thought God gave us brains and we engage them and use them And then number four is experience. Experience that we have our own experience of God. We have our personal experience of God. We have our community experiences of God that we share. And those experiences, we constantly are also confirming and comparing with the primary authority of Scripture and the experiences of people in the past as well. So we're saying, yeah, that's been my experience. That's been this other generation's experience. That's been your experience. So we confirm Our spiritual faith experiences together as a community, and we use also that as discerning the Holy Spirit speaking to us. But keep in mind that of the four, Scripture remains primary. Now, what's happened today in secular humanistic cultures is that what's happened is that they reverse that order, right? So, number one will be personal experience, will be the primary authority. What's truth for me? What's my narrative? This is very postmodern. So what truth for an individual would be is just what my experience is. So experience becomes the number one authority. Number two becomes reasoning, rational thought. We're a part of the scientific method. We're raised in an academic culture of scientific thought. And we hear the term follow the science, right? And so these two things get elevated as authorities in our lives in secular humanistic cultures. What goes away in the, at the same time is tradition and scripture. So both tradition and scripture are then relegated to the sidelines of authority or not seen as an authority at all anymore because they're just obsolete. And so that's the viewpoint that, we, that exists right, in the culture today. The issue is, is that those two sources of authority or information or truth for us Are not always consistent. For example, uh, do you remember when Pluto was a planet, right? Remember that? We would have said some time ago, uh, name the nine planets in the solar system, right? Pluto, fact, right? We would have said that was a scientific fact. Today it is no longer a scientific fact because science is constantly evolving and we're learning new things and we're coming up with new definitions and we're reinterpreting things. And so science is in a process itself uh, that is not What was fact, you know, 20 years ago is not necessarily fact today. And so we see that that is shifting as well. The other thing is our personal experiences are not always reliable authority for truth and for reality. Uh, When I engage with different people and conversation with different people, people see things differently. They have different perspectives. And sometimes it's not always the truth or it's not always reality. And our personal experiences can change over time. And what we thought was true at one point in our lives may not be true at another point in our lives because our personal experiences are always evolving and changing as well. For example, my friend Steve and I, uh, we love riding roller coasters. In fact, when I was a teenager, I could get on a roller coaster and I could ride it multiple times, 10 times, 12 times in a row. If there's no line, I just jump right back on and I would have a ball. We have a great time. So we love riding roller coasters, going to amusement parks. So we thought, let's take our teenage daughters We both had teenage daughters. Let's take them to an amusement park and let's relive the days of riding roller coasters and rides at the amusement park. So we took our daughters to uh, Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida one summer. And we went to the park early and we said, let's, they had just opened up this place in the park called Harry Potter World. And so we made our way all the way across the park to this new part of the park because we figured it'd be crowded and busy because of the popularity And so we got there, and we sure enough, we jumped on the first ride. There was no line. We jumped on this 3D interactive ride, and we're going all over the place and flipping around and twisting around and going upside down. And then we get off that ride, and we look over at the roller coaster called the Dragon Challenge at the time, and dueling roller coasters with loops and curves. And we said, let's go over that. There's no line there. We run over there, and we get on that roller coaster, and we're going through it. And I... Get off of that ride. We all get off, and our daughter's like, "Yeah, that was great. That was awesome." And I'm, I'm I'm getting off like, I need to take a break, man. My my stomach. I, I don't remember responding this way. I, that my, I don't. When I was a teenager, roller coasters, I could just get off and on time after time. Now I'm not feeling too great, and I, and I'm like, I think I need to take a break. Can we go see a show or something, or just go get a coffee, or you know? And I'm feeling a little queasy, and our daughters, teenage daughters, are ready to go, and and then we're like look around, like, "Where's Steve? Where's Steve?" and we can't find Steve anywhere, and uh, so we f- keep looking around, and then finally we find Steve, and he's got his head in a trash can uh, uh, in that section of the park, and I think Steve was now having some remorse about that buffet breakfast he had that morning at the hotel, and so Steve wasn't feeling good either, right? And so here, we we our ch- our experience of roller coasters had changed over time, and some of it had to do with us getting older. I hate to admit that, but so what that says is that our human experience also changes and we learn and grow throughout our lifetime. And what we believe was true in one part of our lives may not necessarily be true in another part of our lives. And so that's just part of human experience and growth. And at times, it cannot, our own human experience may not really capture truth or reality as well. So, but this is why, this is the reason that we need this point of reference that we started talking out about. And the Bible for Christians becomes a point of reference, kind of like a a place of orientation, a place to go to to figure out direction in life and to live life. Uh, A few weeks ago, I was up, uh, went to Mount Rainier and decided to go snowshoeing. And I looked at the weather report at Mount Rainier and the, the weather report for the day was sunny blue sky day. So I made my way, drove up to Mount Rainier And I had, uh, I thought when I got up there, I'd get a a map that had a trail map. And I was hoping to get a trail map when I got there, and I would follow the trail map. When I got up to Paradise, which is where you park your car, there, I couldn't get a trail map. They they weren't providing anything with detail. I was also, at this point, out of cell phone range. I didn't have any cell phone signal there. And so I couldn't download a map uh, from my app. And so I thought to myself, well, you know, it's supposed to be a beautiful, clear, day, a clear blue sky day. How bad could it get? Now, at this point, it's cloudy. Sun's starting to peek through a little bit. So I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. It's clearing up. So I just say, hey, I'll just wing it. Famous last words of anybody who's ever gone mountaineering. And so I started up the mountain. But, you know, I had this little gut feeling that I ought to take a compass reading. So I pull out my trusty old compass that always points north, right? You can rely on it. And I pulled it out and I took a compass reading and I said, I just need to take a reading to make sure the direction I'm setting out in so I have a point of reference, right? So then I began snowshoeing. And as I'm going up the mountain, the clouds are rolling in, the snow is starting to fall, the wind is picking up. And so as I'm getting up the mountain and as visibility is dropping, I decide, you know, I better take another compass heading. So I pull out my compass again, and I take another reading to see where I'm at, reorient myself to where I started. Sure enough, I get another reading. And then I go back, start going back up the mountain. I had not taken into account elevation. I'm used to training at sea level. Now I'm up over 6,000 feet. I'm starting to feel the oxygen deprivation a little bit, starting to feel the altitude. I'm also in deep, heavy snow with snowshoes and poles and I'm trekking up the hill and I'm getting tired and this is a very bad recipe right for anyone you're tired uh, you're not all 100% prepared the conditions are not clearing up they're getting worse and actually as I made it up to Panorama what's called Panorama Point we were in whiteout conditions there were a few others with me up there but they had skis on so they were skiing back down the mountain I was snowshoeing back down the mountain I wish I had a pair of skis when I got to the top of there, it had been so much easier. But as I'm at the top and we're standing there, the other gentleman there who's getting ready to ski down said, do you have a map on you? And I said, uh, no, I don't have a map on me. He's like, well, you know, I've gotten lost out here on the mountain in these conditions before. Uh, you know, do you know your way back? And I said, well, I took a compass reading when I started and I think I can figure it out. So I, what did I do at the top? I pulled out my compass again. I reoriented myself. I figured out what direction I needed to go and I looked and I followed that path. And so even in whiteout conditions, I found a way back. Even though the storm was surrounding us, I was able to figure out my way back. Now I will tell you, I got a little lost on the way back, had to check the compass again, get back on the right course and I had to make a course correction But by the time I got down, I was beat tired. It never turned out to be a blue sunny sky day that day. It turned out to be harsh conditions. And isn't that how we approach life a lot of times? We think that life is going to go so much better than it will. We think it's going to be, uh, we're hopeful it's going to be sunny and clear and easy. When in reality, the storms of life close in on us. And when the storms of life close in on us, do we have a point of reference? Do we have a place to go that will point us north, to reorient us, to get through the storms of life? For me, that's God's word. God's word becomes a point of reference. It becomes a compass for my life and for your life. That when we go to God's word, when we hear God's heart, when we listen to the word of God, it reorients our lives in the right direction to get us safely home to God. That's the power of scripture That's the power of this ancient wisdom passed on to us through God's word. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you have given us this good thing, this goodness of yourself, revealing yourself to us through the scriptures, through the Bible. Lord, help us to be people who will listen to it and hear it and find ways to put it into practice that our hearts, God, would be your heart, that our hearts would sync up with your heart, that we would, we would seek you with all our heart through your word, that we would hide your word in our hearts, that we would be people who live according to your word and not listen to all the other surrounding voices in our lives, so many voices clamoring for our attention, claiming to have the truth, claiming to be reliable authorities in our lives. And yet, Lord, you want to draw us to you. You want to draw us to your heart and to your word. And so, Lord, help us to be people of one book, just like our founder Wesley was, just like other Christians are, that we would be people of your word today. Help us, Lord. Send your Holy Spirit to help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.